0: Good morning, everyone. You're listening to The Sci-Files, an exposure segment featuring Michigan State University student research. We're your co-hosts, Chelsea Boudou
1: and Daniel Puentes.
0: Today we welcome Isaiah Kaufman. Isaiah, may you please tell us a little bit about yourself?
1: Uh, Yeah, so my name is Isaiah Kaufman. I'm actually not an MSU student. I'm here as part of an REU program for the summer. I'm actually from Goshen, Indiana, attending Goshen College. I'm an undergraduate there entering my senior year. And I'm here for an RU through the Great Lakes Bioenergy Research Center. Nice. So what does that mean that your study is in then? Uh, so yeah, as the name indicates, it's mainly focused on bioenergy. But there's actually a lot that goes around that. And so a lot of it is actually focused on crop productivity. So just making bioenergy crops that'll grow faster, that are more resilient to things like climate change as well as the things further downstream where you're processing it, trying to actually make the biodiesel or the fuel from it. Mine is more focused on the plant-resilient side.
0: What research are you doing over here at MSU?
1: So I'm in the Sharkey lab, which focuses on photosynthesis, but in particular I'm looking at a little molecule called isoprene. And so this is a molecule that plants emit in very large amounts, but only some plants emit it. And so they emit in a quantity globally of 550 million tons per year. I tried to find some things that we can compare this to, and so it comes out to about 230,000 adult elephants per day, or about 96 pyramids of Giza per year. And so it's a lot of it, but we don't have a very good understanding of what it does. And so it's been shown to give plants more heat resilience. And so now my research is looking at how it actually affects the cold tolerance of plants to see if there are any negative impacts from isoprene when they're in the cold.
2: Thanks, Isaiah. Can you elaborate a little more about why isoprene is important for a plant in the first place?
1: Uh, Yeah, so it's a hemiterpene that plants emit. And so a hemiterpene means that it has five carbons. And so there are actually a lot of different terpenes that plants emit that have various functions And so there are fragrances, pretty much anything you smell from a plant is some kind of terpene. Some have medicinal qualities, like different cancer drugs and malarial drugs, or they're different waxes. And so this is the smallest terpene that can possibly be made by a plant. And it's only made by some plants, not all. And so the thing is, is our understanding of it's actually not very good. But we know that it has to have some kind of special characteristics, because it comes up so often in evolution. It appears to have been lost and gained many times throughout evolutionary history, and we don't really understand why. So part of my research is trying to figure out why would a plant want to give up being able to produce this molecule?
0: Interesting. From what I'm gathering that you just said, it's the smallest terpene out there?
1: Yep, that's true.
0: And how do you characterize a terpene?
1: Um, it's mostly based on the structure of it. And so it's these different molecules that plants make that come with five carbon intervals, either five carbons or 10 carbons, 15 or 20. And they're all made from the same basic building blocks by plants.
0: And whenever you look in the past for the evolutionary history of it, you're saying that it goes away, but it comes back. Does that have to do with the temperature, the environment? Like, Do you think there's any correlation with what's going on
1: in the environment? So That's one of the weird things about isoprene is it's really hard to predict whether or not a plant will emit isoprene based on where it is. So there are some patterns, like in the tropics, there are a lot of plants emitting it. But once you get away from the tropics, it's not very clear which plants emit it and which plants won't. In general, the plants that emit the most are trees, ferns, and mosses. But aside from that, it's really hard to predict because even a couple of grasses emit it, and we don't really know why just those few emit it, but the other ones don't. And even within like genuses and families, it's really hard to say which ones will emit ice and which ones won't.
2: We're nearing towards the end of the summer. I'm curious about what results that your research has brought about ever since you started this summer.
1: Uh, yes, yeah. so let's see. I guess I should explain a little bit about the experiment itself. And so we're using Arabidopsis, which is a model organism for plants. It's a kind of mustard plant, pretty fast growing, really easy to work with. And so we're using six different lines of this plant. And so we're using the wild-type plant. We also have three lines that were genetically engineered to be able to produce isoprene, as well as two empty vector controls that just served to make sure that when we engineered the plants, we didn't mess them up in any way. And so we then grew these plants under four different conditions. For one of them, we just grew it in four weeks at 23, and then another four weeks at 23. So that's just our basic control, eight weeks at 23. For another one, we grew it at four weeks at 23 degrees Celsius, and then we subjected it to a 24-hour 30 degrees Celsius heat stress, and then put it back into 23 degrees Celsius. The next one, we grew it at 23 degrees Celsius for four weeks, and then put it straight into four degrees Celsius for four weeks. And then the last treatment, we grew it for four weeks at 23 degrees Celsius, followed by the 30 degrees Celsius, 24 hour heat stress, and then it went into four degrees Celsius for the cold stress. And so yeah, that's a lot of temperature information, but pretty much what we were trying to do is we're trying to see if the heat stress will have a similar effect as the isoprene, because isoprene helps with heat stress, and so we're checking to see does the gene expression that changes from heat stress, is that similar to the gene expression changes from isoprene. And so what we found, there were a lot of things that we measured. For which there wasn't a difference and especially for growth things like the dry area not the dry area the dry weight of the plant or the projected leaf area which is just how much area does the plant cover if you look from above those things were not affected by the cold stress after four weeks in cold but when we looked at photosynthesis we found that there actually was a significant difference so the Four degree, the non-emitters, the plants that don't emit isoprene, so just the control lines, when those were just at four degrees, that was actually significantly higher than the isoprene-emitting plants that were at four degrees. And so that indicates to us that isoprene actually decreased the photosynthesis in the isoprene- emitting plants, and so something about the isoprene made them more susceptible to damage, which led to lower photosynthesis in the cold. And then also, if you compare the non-emitting four-degree plants to the non-emitting four-degree plants that were heat-stressed, the heat-stressed ones are also lower than the four-degree one. And so we did find that the heat stress and the isoprene had very similar effects on the photosynthesis of these plants.
2: Is it the rate at which these plants are conducting photosynthesis?
1: Yes, and so we measure that by feeding them a certain amount of carbon dioxide and then seeing how much comes out is the basic How do you mechanism. see how
0: much carbon dioxide comes out of a plant?
1: We use a fancy instrument. For those measurements, we used a LICOR 6400 XT. And so you've got the plant in a special sealed chamber, and then there's a machine that's able to control how much carbon dioxide enters, and then measures how much leaves.
2: Well, that's a really interesting result. Is this something that has been investigated before, or is this something that's newly discovered?
1: So this is actually pretty new. Not many people have done experiments looking at cold stress in isoprene, so this is definitely one of the first. In my search for papers that talked about this, these kind of things, it's not really ever been experimented with. The reason we're doing it is because there was a recent paper, also done in the Sharkey Lab, that was just published in 2019 that was looking at gene expression changes from isoprene. And so they did find that there were some pathways that were changed in such a way that the plants might be more susceptible to cold. But they never actually measured them in the cold, so we don't know if that actually carries out. And so this is just checking to see, do those gene expression changes that they measured, will those actually negatively impact the plant?
2: It's really interesting to see how an experiment can change its scope as it progresses, because you think you have one goal in mind at the beginning, but then you find that you have completely found something new that was unexpected, and I think that's really interesting. I agree. With this new observation, are there any future plans to expand on it?
1: Uh, Yeah, so there's actually another undergraduate who's currently working on that since I'll be leaving soon, but she'll be here for another two months. And we're looking at a few ways to try to tease that out. One of them is to increase the temperature that we heat it to, to just heat stress it even more. Another is to, after the cold stress, give it a period where we're growing it in heat stress to see if that, because we saw a difference in photosynthesis, but that didn't come along with a difference in growth. So we're thinking maybe if we let them grow for a while at the warmer temperature, we might see that difference in growth. And we can also see over the longer term, do they recover their ability to perform photosynthesis or is that permanent damage?
0: Interesting. Is this other undergraduate student here at MSU or are they also in an RU program like yourself?
1: Uh, they're actually doing an internship. And so they go to a college in Greece. Wow.
2: International collaboration is important.
1: Oh, yeah, for sure.
0: How has your experience been with the Great Lakes Bioenergy Research REU over here at Michigan State University?
1: It's been pretty great. And so, yeah, I get free housing and meals, which is pretty awesome. And also they've given us a lot of professional development seminar kind of things and also field trips. So we've gone out to the Kellogg Biological Research Station We've gone to local farms or the, uh, what's it called? There's that fermenter down in the south of campus. And so we get to see all these cool things that aren't within what we're doing in our research, but do kind of let us see the broader field of what bioenergy research is.
0: That's wonderful. They're giving you exposure to other areas within your field. Do you think that you want to stick to this kind of topic or are you interested in other areas of research with uh, plant bioenergy?
1: That's a good question. And it's something I'm not totally sure of yet. Uh, One thing that's had me interested in bioenergy research is actually poplar trees. And so I got to grow some of those this summer as part of kind of a side project And they're actually really impressive trees. And they're actually being investigated by the Great Lakes Bioenergy Research Center as a potential crop to use to produce biofuels, which people don't usually think about a tree being used as a crop. And so I thought that was something very interesting. And we saw some farms recently where they just planted some poplars. And so that is one thing that's gotten me interested. You're not
0: the first person to mention poplar trees before. It seems like they're quite popular. Why are they so popular?
1: The main reason is that they're just incredibly fast growing. And so within a few days of planting them, you can already see some leaves starting to form. And I've just been incredibly impressed during my time growing the poplars to see how fast they're growing. And then also, in the case of trying to make biofuels, the composition of the wood Is actually a lot better than a lot of other trees as far as what kind of molecules are in it.
2: Well it seems like you're involved in a multitude of projects while you've been here at Michigan State University. Did you have any prior research
1: experience before coming here or did you just jump right in? So I did have previous research experience at my home institution and so there we have something called Algae Town which is these photobioreactors, so these tanks in which we're growing microalgae, which microalgae have also been a big target for biofuels. And so we're trying to find a more efficient way to grow and then harvest those algae. And so last summer, I was doing some DNA work trying to identify the species of algae that we were using.
2: This leads me to a question about biofuels. We've talked about using poplar trees for biofuels but now there's also been discussion about using algae for trees i mean for biofuels i don't understand how one would extract more bioenergy out of a tree versus algae since they're when when i think of them they're in many orders of magnitude different in sizes why is there research in such different areas of plant research for bioenergy
1: Well, so all plants are still plants, so whether it's the algae or the poplar, they're still undergoing photosynthesis, and they're still pulling carbon dioxide from the air and then turning that into sugars or fats, and so they both have the basic ingredients you need to make a biofuel, whether it's the sugar or the fat, but they might differ in how much of one they have or how much they have of the other, and also in their productivity but you can still use them to the same end for the most part.
0: What does a biofuel actually consist of? Like, is there a particular ingredient that everyone looks for when they're trying to isolate it?
1: Uh, Well, a biofuel can be pretty much anything that you can use in an internal combustion engine. And so you might have biodiesels or the big one is ethanol, which actually the Great Lakes Bioenergy Research Center isn't supposed to research anymore because it's, Already been done a lot, and it's also looking like it may not be as sustainable as we thought. But yeah, pretty much anything that you can burn for fuel that comes from a plant. Oh yeah, and the Great Lakes Bioenergy Research Center also isn't allowed to research food crops anymore to get rid of the food versus fuel debate, which was one reason they're trying to use poplars.
0: Wait, 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 what, what do you mean by food versus fuel debate? Like can't you harvest corn and then use the scraps for fuel?
1: Uh, no, not really, because what you really want is the sugars, and so once you pull out the valuable things, there's not much left to produce ethanol. One thing you can do is, after you produce ethanol with corn, you can use the scraps from that to feed maybe, like, cattle, but yeah, it's, it's a hot debate.
2: Well, thank you for coming in this morning, Isaiah. I really appreciate it. Before you leave, do you have any future plans about what you want to do once your research experience here is over at Michigan State?
1: So yeah, I'm not totally sure what I want to do. I am looking into grad school, and MSU is definitely a place I'm interested in because they have such a good plant science program. And one thing I am interested in is the poplars, because I just fell in love with them this summer. But yeah, beyond that, I'm not sure if I want to continue in research or more if I want to go into something like policymaking or government work because a lot of the research we have, we could already create a lot more sustainable systems just by implementing what we already know. And so I'm still trying to figure out if I want to try to research more things to get more ideas of how we can be more sustainable or if I want to go into policy and make sure that we're actually enacting the change that we need.
2: I 100% agree. It's difficult trying to determine the balance between those policies that uh, dictate what can be done versus the actual research that's being conducted, as well as the results that we're finding from that research. Uh, But thank you so much. Good luck with whatever decision you end up picking for the future. I'm more than confident that whichever direction you end up picking, you will be successful in. Thank
1: Thank you. you. Thank you.
2: Thank you to all of our listeners that joined us this week. And remember, the truth is in the science. Any comments and questions can be directed to scifiles at impact89fm.org. We'll see you all next week on SciFiles.